Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Circle of Insight Foreign Affairs, where you will receive a daily briefing on national security news from around the world. Let's get started. Here's your host, Dr. Carlos. We're going to be talking about violence in Mexico and also the police situation in Mexico, the criminal justice system, and a whole lot more with Dr. David Shirk. You can find a lot more about him at justiceinmexico.org. They did a fabulous report about the violence in Mexico and the criminal justice system. So let's not waste any more time and let's get cracking. Well, Professor Shirk, thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're continuing on this series as we look at the border. We're going to look at Mexico, drug cartels, the violence, narcoology. We're looking at that as well. And a lot of interesting things that are happening down there. And you did a great report this year early on. You and your team in 2018, uh, actually not earlier this year, it was last year, 2018, Drug Violence in Mexico. Uh, and it was a great report. You really covered a lot of information. Um, let me ask you this. First things first. I don't even know if I should even ask this. Is violence still a problem in Mexico? Yes. Um, so the report we did, uh, actually, this is a this report is something we've done for the last ten years. We've been um, each year compiling the latest available uh, law enforcement information and um, uh, public access information, uh, media reports, and so on. Uh, for trying to get a handle on the amount of violence in Mexico, primarily homicides, um, and particularly violence that is associated with organized crime groups, um, and especially drug trafficking organizations. Uh, so for the first 10 years that we did this report, we called it the drug violence uh, in drug violence in Mexico, uh, focusing on specifically drug traffickers. Uh, but this year, uh, in uh, when we published that report in April 2019, uh, we actually changed the title to Organized Crime and Violence in Mexico, um, partly in recognition of the fact that over the last few years, uh, and especially this last year, much of the spectacular violence in Mexico, the high profile violence that we see in Mexico, it ha has come from organizations that are not necessarily primarily dedicated to, um, the, uh, to, to drug trafficking. In particular, this last several months, we've seen a lot of violence in, um, in the state of Guanajuato uh, from drug, from organizations that broke away, criminal organizations that broke away from major drug trafficking groups to specialize in uh, the, the movement of, uh, and, and the illicit uh, uh, sale of fuel, 
uh, fuel theft and, and fuel sales by criminal organizations, by organized crime groups, uh, created a major crisis uh, in late 2018, uh, with lots of violence and uh, a standoff with the Mexican government. That's amazing, because I know one of the things I was speaking with a former um, Mexican police officer, I think he was on a special unit down there in Tijuana, uh, the other thing, too, he was adding is that a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of disappearances as long, uh, going along with those homicides. Is that true? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the, the homicide count is always an underestimate of the total number of people who die. Uh, lar fairly large numbers of people disappear. There's not even a very good tracking system for um, monitoring disappearances. And we have... We have thousands of disappearances here in the United States each year. They're mostly uh, adolescent runaways. Um, but, um, you know, in Mexico, in many cases, these are, uh, these are people who've disappeared because they've been picked up by um, a rival or criminal organization or uh, just somebody who wants to, to cause them harm, uh, and they're never seen again. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess I know when I was speaking to him, he was alluding to the fact that maybe they were dissolved in acid, uh, maybe they were buried, but it could also be human trafficking or sex trafficking. They're just gone. They're gone to another country, and that's the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I numbers on human trafficking are so slippery, um, and in, in so many cases, they're you know you're not going to walk down the street and get abducted into a sex trafficking ring. That does not happen. Uh, there are so many precipitating factors that contribute to people falling into prostitution and particularly forced prostitution. Um, but there are definitely um, people who uh, just uh, disappear often. I mean, I think the biggest phenomenon that we've seen in Mexico is just so many clandestine graves. Uh, people are, are killed and thrown into a pit um, often a uh, mass grave, uh, three, four, 40 bodies, um, and disappeared. Acid, um, or really more uh, appropriately, uh, industrial chemicals like lye have been used to dissolve bodies. Bodies have, um, are, have been disposed of in metal drums, uh, through burning. Uh, there, there are lots of different ways that, I mean, when you're talking about tens of thousands of homicides in, um, in in a single year, uh, that's a lot of bodies that you're that are uh, that are you're going through, and um, in many cases, when the perpetrators are trying to hide uh, the fact that they've been uh, th that they've killed someone, it's necessary to dissolve to, to get rid of those bodies in some way. Um, but a lot of the homicides are, are bodies that are just found left on the street. Uh, you know. Uh, particularly in Tijuana, uh, which last year was the, the murder capital of Mexico, you had over 2,000 killings, um, it, but they were accumulated in ones and twos, you know, uh, small numbers of people who were shot in individual confrontations or one or two, th th two or three people rolled up on them and, uh, and, and shot them, just left them for dead. So it's... Um, you know, the, the the manifestation of violence in Mexico today is very different than what we were seeing five or ten years ago, uh, where you had literally battles going on between major drug trafficking organizations, uh, 
with 10, 15 people being killed in a, in a single incident uh, to a much more dispersed violence today uh, that's sort of more street corner level. Uh, there's still high level violence between major criminal organizations, but I think that the, the main challenge Mexico's facing today that law enforcement is dealing with is just how dispersed uh, the violence has become. You know, I know over here, uh, they've done a lot of studies on hotspot policing where they find that five, 50% of the, the homicides are located in 5% of the cities or at least crimes, well violent crime. Is that the same thing in Mexico? Are there particular states that have a lot more homicides than others? Yes. In fact, uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, a third, I think it was a third of all Mexico's homicides um, were found in just um, five cities. Um, you could, like in 2010, uh, you could, if you could get rid of uh, the top five large, most violent cities, Juarez, Tijuana, Chihuahua, Culiacan, if you could get rid of those five cities, Mexico's homicide rate would, dro would have dropped by 33%. Um, and the top 10 cities in Mexico at that time accounted for uh, about over 40%, close to 45% of the violence uh, of, of all homicides in, in Mexico. So uh, that's a, you know, in a country of uh, 120, 130 million people, that's an enormous concentration of violence in a small set of geographic areas. Last year, um, in 2018, those numbers were not quite as bad, but still an incredible concentration. The top five cities in, uh, in Mexico accounted for one in four homicides. Basically about 25% of all homicides were concentrated in Tijuana, Juarez, Acapulco, but, uh, uh, Cancun, uh, and Culiacan. Those were the five uh, major murder cities. Uh, and if you counted the top 10 cities, uh, about 40% of all homicides uh, in Mexico were, were just in 10 cities. So one of the key things that I think can be done from a law enforcement perspective is to really focus uh, those focus law enforcement resources in those in those major uh, generators of violence, um, those major uh, concentration points of violence in Mexico. Um, and, and by far, you know, Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez and Acapulco uh, are, you know, the, the places where we see uh, the largest numbers of people who are being killed and, and very high homicide rates from, for relatively large cities. Tijuana's got over a million people and the homicide rate that we calculated for last year was uh, over 100 murders per 100,000. It was 115 murders per 100,000. In Acapulco, you've got 129 murders per 100,000. Wow. That's 20 times, more than 20 times the rate of homicide we have here in the United States. It's higher than El Salvador. I think it's up almost double. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard to make those comparisons uh, across, like comparing a city to a state, comparing a city to a country. It's difficult oh. because with different geographic areas, the 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 formula we use to calculate uh, homicide rates, um, the, the larger the geographic area, um, and the more. I mean, you're mixing, you're basically mixing urban areas with, with rural areas, which tend to have very different rates of violence. So, um, but it's, yes, 
we're talking about astonishingly high homicide rates. What, dude, I haven't done the math for all U.S. cities for 2018 because it's not available yet from the Uniform Crime Index uh, produced by the FBI. But I think there's a very good probability that Tijuana saw more homicides last year than the top 10 U.S. cities combined. Well, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that at all. That's tragic. And another thing, too, is there's 32 states, if I'm correct, in Mexico. Um, I'm assuming if you added all the cities up, you're talking a couple thousand cities at least in the country. And you're yeah, talking about, about 2,000 or something? I can't remember how many. Two, around 2,400 municipalities in Mexico. And you're, you're, you said about five cities yeah. covered a quarter out of two, over 20, about 2,400. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's and, and and so what's interesting is the Mexican government has proposed deploying. They 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 recently created a uh, new national guard, uh, which they're going to have to get new uniforms, new training, uh, new oh. new rule books, everything. Um, you know, so there's this there, there's this effort to sort of create a brand new agency that's going to deal with these problems, and they've suggested that they're going to deploy these um, the the these new uh, national guards persons to dozens of cities around the country. And I think that's probably a flawed strategy in and of itself because it's not, it's not really looking at what the problem, uh, what problems are being faced, particularly in these specific local areas um, and deploying resources to where they're needed. It's just kind of this blanket approach, uh, which uh, has not proved very successful in the past. Um, and and doesn't take into consideration sort of the, the local dynamics uh, of what's going on. In these places in particular, you know, Tijuana, Juarez, Acapulco, it's very clear that major organized crime uh, groups are vying for control of drug trafficking routes uh, or production uh, in those areas. And that's a major contributor, arguably the major contributor to violence in those places. Yeah, that's the thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's another thing too. We saw uh, Los Zetas. I think were coming down to Mexico City and making a big run for it down there, as well as the city of Tepito, which is known for problems. And that's that's amazing. So Los Zetas seem to be kind of um, trying to take some more land or territory than normal. I don't know. Uh, you probably don't know better than yeah, I. Do. I mean, I th I think we're seeing a reconfiguration of the ma major organized crime networks in Mexico in part because of what happened in 2014 and 2015 when Chapo Guzman was essentially taken out of the game um, and moved, uh, relocated to the United States, uh, extradited to the United States. That, um, you know, Chapo had been behind bars since early 2014, but when it became clear that he was gonna be moved to the United States, uh, extradited to the United States, um, his ability to control his empire, uh, or at least his slice of the uh, uh, the Tijuana, or the the Sinaloa cartel, um, it just it, it created um, a power vacuum that allowed other criminal organizations, uh, the Zetas, the New Generation Cartel. Um, to start making moves uh, on, on places that were once solidly under um, Sinaloan control. Uh, moving into Mexico City is, is kind of an interesting move on the Zetas part insofar as that's kind of been a, um, 
uh, a safe zone. Uh, in the last five, 10 years, uh, it's been, um, there's not been a lot of violence or fighting over, um, over Mexico City uh, for many years uh, prior to, you know, in, in the early 2000s, uh, the city was controlled largely by the Beltran Leyva organization that was uh, connected to the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, but somehow, Mexico City managed to avoid um, the the kind of violence and uh, and and territorial um, competition that we saw in in other places in Mexico. Um, but moving into Tepito and places that are controlled by relatively strong local organizations could be seen as a uh, a, a kind of desperate move by the Zetas to, to expand into other areas, again, diversifying away from drug trafficking to um, more local um, forms of criminal activity. Yeah, it's an interesting point, because I know you mentioned it's, it's kind of like a no-go zone or a safe zone for the from, from the cartel. But and you would know better than I would, but it seems like lately, the last five or 10 years, as you mentioned, patterns have changed. We've seen a lot more attacks in Guadalajara. Cancun's gone up. A lot of the tourist spots, Alcapulco, which used yeah. to be unheard of, and now it's just a lot. And yeah. I can't even remember. I think Cancun had really high numbers of sort of Alcapulco and homicides. Yeah. Um, really crazy stuff. Do you think this is a, uh, a harbinger of things to come, that they're spreading out? Or is it a sign of that they're losing money? Or what's, uh, what's happening here, you think? Well, uh, part of it, it has to do with, I mean, Acapulco, for example, started to see growing numbers of homicide around 2010, 2011. Um, and that has to do with the splintering of uh, criminal organizations that um, were primarily associated with the Sinaloa organization uh, that have now broken up and begun to to buy for control over both production in the state of Guerrero uh, and also trafficking um, through major uh, cities like Acapulco. Uh, but those those places are now um, uh, have seen such fragmentation of organized crime groups. Uh, places like Acapulco um, have begun to have um, just uh, a very, uh, high degree of infighting among relatively smaller regional criminal organizations that um, have a propensity to engage in more predatory kinds of criminal activities, things like extortion and kidnapping, um, which also lead to higher levels of, of death and violence uh, because, uh, you know, Nap someone, um, maybe you ransom them and return them alive. Maybe you just kill them uh, with extortion. In many cases, you have to kill people to make it clear that you are um, that that you are a real threat to be obeyed. Um, so there's, I think, been a um, as a result of the restructuring of Mexican organized crime groups uh, in different parts of the country, we're seeing um, places that used to be fairly calm and controlled by um, once dominant, almost monopolistic criminal organizations. Uh, they're now uh, sort of um, subject to uh, 
sort of localized conflicts over who's going to control certain parts of those territories, and also, um, as I said, greater predatory violence. One of the neat things about your report, folks, I'd highly recommend that you go get that. You can, you can find it online. Uh, it's actually at justiceinmexico.org. You can find the report there. Really good report. One of the things I liked about the report, too, is you also talk about, I don't want to say real stuff, but things that really matter that people don't usually talk about in the media, the socioeconomic conditions and the roles that they play. You talked about the pipelines, and we'll get to that in a little bit. One of the things I've been hearing from some of the Mexican police officers or former ones is that, look, we get paid $400, $600 a month. In Mexico, they said the minimum wage, depending on the state, of course, could be 200 bucks. To live comfortably there, you need about 2000 at least yeah. some of the consensus. Uh, so cartels, well, hey, uh, Carlos, can you look to the left? I'm going to drive my truck to the right. Here's 200 bucks, and that's already almost a third of your paycheck in about five minutes. Um, that's a big problem. That's not an easy one to solve. If, I, if I'm am I near here, the, am I accurate? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, I think coming from the United States, it's very difficult for us to imagine or, or, or arguably to remember um, a, a, a time when law enforcement in the United States was not professional, right? I mean, um, yes, we have problems uh, in the United States. Uh, yes, there, there's even corruption among uh, law enforcement uh, agents in the United States, but they are a small minority. Uh, and um, the, the vast majority of officers are, uh, first of all, have a high degree of integrity. Uh, and secondly, um, have a high degree of accountability. There, if, if for some reason an agent uh, or a law enforcement officer goes bad, um, there are systems At in place. Rachel B. Uh, Smith, you want to follow her on Twitter? Yeah, she's on YouTube. She's about everywhere. Keep, Instagram. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Probably the most active on Instagram. It's at our Part of that is that we pay professional wages to people who have been professionally prepared for career So you'll be able to follow those. I highly recommend that you follow her and see what she's up to. We've for almost 10 years now. Rachel, thank you so much for being here. We truly appreciate it. We did our first survey of Mexican law enforcement. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Remember, catch these interviews. Make sure you subscribe and, and hit that little bell on the YouTube channel so you can follow more of these interviews. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Mexico's catch second largest city. Um, and the surrounding uh, municipalities of, of uh, Guadalajara, Zapopan, Tlaquepaque. Um, and, and we surveyed at that time 4,200 law enforcement um, officers, basically about 80% of, of, um, of the payroll of that of the various departments that uh, we were working with uh, and we later replicated that same survey in Ciudad Juarez in Tijuana um, and what we found across the board first of all um, were shockingly low levels of uh, professional preparation um, you know middle school level education for many of the officers um, Tijuana was an exception they had, um, they had more high school graduates, more college graduates, because the level of education generally is higher in, in Northern Mexico. Um, but most of them had not spent more than three months uh, of uh, preparation in a police academy. Um, most of them had very limited training in the proper use of firearms, uh, in the use of non-lethal force. Um, and so, you know, you're, 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 
raw material going into the force is is really inadequate, uh, inadequately prepared for uh, one of the most dangerous and, and important jobs in any society. Uh, and then adding to that, you know, they're moving into a job where they're going to be paid, as you point out, um, in salaries range between $400 in some of the poorest municipalities that we surveyed up to maybe $1,200 in, um, in Tijuana. Um, but that was not necessarily the, the norm, uh, normative salary uh, in Tijuana. And, and the cost of living in Tijuana is, is definitely much higher than $1,200. $100 a month. And most of these officers uh, indicated that it was their prime, they were the primary breadwinner in their family. Um, and so add to that the fact that they had to, mo most of the agents reported that they had to supply their own equipment. Uh, they had to buy their own boots. They had to buy their own, uh, you know, uh, parts of their uh, uniform, uh, either because they didn't fit properly or because they were never issued one in the first place, or they, you know, boots wore out in six months. So, um, you know, th there's an extra burden of, of serving in your job. Uh, and then the coup de grace is just the fact that um, because you're paid so poorly, um, there is, um, there's constant effort to try to undermine the integrity of law enforcement institutions uh, in Mexico, mainly by organized crime, but even by everyday citizens. Um, you know, if, if you've got a, if you get stopped for speeding, um, the, the cop might solicit a bribe from you, but in many cases, ordinary citizens will say, hey, let me give you 200 pesos, uh, you know, the equivalent of, of maybe 10 bucks, uh, and we can just let me drive away. And so it, it, there is, um, you know, just a t complete lack of um, integrity and, and support for integrity in Mexican law enforcement. And that's, that's, Unfortunately, something that requires major changes in public administration in Mexico, they would need to dramatically increase tax revenues in order to be able to pay, uh, to, to put more money into law enforcement. Um, but it also requires, it's not just a resource question, it's also a systems question. It's about how the system is designed to create incentives for law enforcement officers. And unfortunately, the number one complaint uh, as I saw it in the survey that we did, uh, the surveys that we did. Across the board, law enforcement indicated that there were no clear or fair professional criteria for advancement uh, and promotion on the force. Uh, if you wanted to move up the ranks, you basically had to have uh, a good relationship with your supervisor, which often meant turning a blind eye to corrupt or um, improper activities on the force. Fascinating, fascinating. So really they had no, very little hope in moving up or anything like that. You know, do they offer any other benefits? I mean, do they offer health care? Do they offer retirement? Yeah, so if you get killed in the line of duty, there's no fund uh, to pay for your funeral uh, in, in most cases. Uh, there's not, let alone insurance for your family, right? So uh, the, the, the side benefits of policing are the ones you create for yourself in many cases. So that's why we see uh, you know, uh, people taking bribes, people abusing their authority in, in various ways, um, you know, limited only by the human imagination. Um, and, and it's, it's really unfortunate because then the, the, the relationship between police and society, uh, 
in Mexico is a bad one. People don't trust police. They don't want to report crimes. The vast majority of crimes go unreported, uh, which then allows for more crime. Uh, and it becomes this vicious cycle in which, um, you know, you have untrustworthy police. People don't trust the police. That contributes to more crime. Uh, that means that uh, the, the police are unable to control the situation and they lose even more respect. Uh, and then people don't want to invest in better policing. They don't think that it's even possible. So, you know, it's, it, it's a very discouraging situation, um, but I don't think it's hopeless. So many of the people that we interviewed, um, so many of the young cadets especially, um, had much higher levels of education on average uh, than uh, the rest of the force. Uh, they were much more enthusiastic about trying to make a change in their agency. And, and I do, I have some hope that as Mexico's economic uh, situation improves, as, as better opportunities become available to all Mexicans, which we've started to see in the last five, 10 years, um, we'll see better institutional performance in government, uh, in probably all areas of government, but especially in policing. But they're not going to be successful if they don't have professional criteria, merit-based criteria for how police are selected, how police uh, are promoted, and, and um, especially how they're compensated. And, and that, so I, you know, I think we're looking at a much better police force in Mexico in 10 or 20 years. Uh, but that's a long time to wait when you've got 20,000 people dying every year from homicides. Oh, absolutely. And they're at a pace right now at a pace at almost 35,000 for this year alone. So 94, yes. 95 a day. That's right. Yeah. Last year we saw 33,000. It's, it's on track. Uh, and that was a record year, uh, which beat the previous year, which was also a record year. Uh, this, this year, 2019 is, is almost certain to surpass the, uh, the, the amount of violence, the amount of homicides that we saw, uh, in, in the record year of 2019. And that, that what we've seen in the last couple of years, as we point out in the report, um, it's actually driving Mexico's national homicide rate up. It's not, these aren't, uh, population increases uh, that are driving these numbers. It's, it's uh, very much a, a real increase in the incidence of, of, of homicide. Um, other kinds of crime, extortion, kidnapping, um, the, there's not as much evidence that those are going up, but those are also harder things to measure. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. I mean, you have a whole new president with a different type of ideology going in and uh, I'm sure he's not happy about the numbers going the way they are. I guess that's why the implementation of the National Guard. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, I know one of the officers said that it's really hard for them to get credit down there in Mexico when, you, when you're a police officer, I guess, because they don't think either you can afford it or they don't think you're going to be around long enough. Uh, that's true. So you've heard that before. Yes, absolutely. And it's one of the things that some, you know, there's, there are certainly some people really trying to innovate and improve policing in Mexico. Um, and in here in Tijuana, one of the programs that was introduced, there were a couple of programs that were introduced that were, um, you know, set good incentives for police. One of them was uh, housing assistance, uh, because it is so difficult to get, uh, loans from, for the average person in Mexico, um, but also, I mean, for, for the police are among the lowest paid public servants in Mexico, uh, and they have the most difficult and dangerous jobs of, of any public servants. So it's, um, 
get, making sure they have a safe place to live, a decent place to live is, is a great way to help respect the, the job uh, that they do. And it's something that they're very interested in. Some officers, like we, we asked this question on the survey, uh, some officers pointed out that one of the things that they care most about is just having decent opportunities for their kids when it comes to uh, public school. In Mexico, um, or in terms, of, in terms of their education, in Mexico, uh, you're not uh, guaranteed necessarily a, uh, a high school education. Um, and in many cases, families have to pay for a decent, to get into a decent public high school for their kids. So providing scholarships for, for the kids of police officers um, and making their, their job, a job and opportunity for their entire family is something that would be very beneficial. Um, but also even little things like uh, one of the things that they, they did in Tijuana that was very successful was uh, giving police officers coupons and credits for uh, buying uh, goods at, at stores, uh, you know, 20% off coupon, at, I don't know, Baskin Robbins or, or things like that, um, are, are just ways of acknowledging and recognizing the service that these officers are providing to their community. We do that here in the United States all the time, uh, for example, for law enforcement and uh, military personnel, right? You get a 10% discount on your, uh, on your car wash, right? Um, but it's, it, you know, that, that kind of respect for uh, law enforcement doesn't exist for the most part in Mexico. So changing the, trying to change that culture, cultural element and change the, the sort of relationship between police and society, um, those kinds of programs can go a long way. Um, and it's important. I, one thing I really want to underscore is we have a very short-term memory in the United States when it comes to our own history of police corruption and police brutality, you know, that doesn't date back that far, right? 19, in the 1950s, um, until the 1950s, you really didn't have basic protections, for example, for people of color in the United States, um, especially in the South, but even other parts of the country. Uh, and it's really with the civil rights movement that we start to see um, some of the old norms of policing in the United States get challenged uh, with regard to brutality. Um, it's there's also a major transformation in the United States from the 1920s through the 1960s as organized crime got weaker from the prohibition era uh, to the 19, late 1960s when we saw more professional law enforcement at the federal level uh, and, and a, more of an effort to crack down on organized crime. Um, and it wasn't really even until the 1970s, uh, you know, the Serpico era that, that some of that public airing of problems of corruption uh, came out and helped uh, formulate the, uh, led to the commissions, uh, the NAP commission and other uh, citizen commissions that really began to shed sunlight on uh, internal practices in U.S. police departments. Now, Mexico's not even close to having its first Serpico. Uh, there's not been a law enforcement officer who has stood up and said, hey, there's a problem on the force here. I, I think my commanding officers are are dirty and somebody needs to do something about it. Uh, that has not happened because the first officer that does that is very likely going to get get killed, uh, just like they tried to do to Serpico. Um, but there is, I think, real, um, real potential in the next 10 years or so for that kind of 
thinking, that kind of, um, you know, professional integrity to develop in Mexican law enforcement. Um, and I'm, so I'm, I'm always an optimist because I'm thinking long-term uh, and, and I have very modest expectations uh, for what, what can be done. Um, but I do, I do have some hope that, um, that some things, particularly the socio-demographic um, indicators are moving in the right direction. We're seeing more women being hired on, on Mexican police forces. Um, we're seeing um, some of those old officers moving off the force. So I, I do think there's, there's some hope. Um, let me ask you this. I'm not sure how familiar you are uh, with the criminal justice system in regards to the prosecutors and in regards to, in regards to the judges. The, the police officers are step one. You get the arrest, but then they got to get prosecuted. What happens there? Yeah, yeah. Police are arguably the weakest link in the chain. We, we've we've been working with um, on Mexican judicial reform since the early two thousands. Um, there, that's uh, our program, the Justice Mexico program, uh, looks at all aspects of judicial sector function. We look at crime and violence and then judicial sector functioning in Mexico, and that includes police, prosecutors, judges, prisons. And, you know, that's, it's a big, looking at each of those areas, there's a lot of room for improvement in each one. And to say that police are the weakest link in the chain says a lot, uh, considering the state of Mexican prisons, considering, you know, the other areas of the justice sector. But, um, you know, police are the weakest link in the chain, in part because they're the most important link for the, what, uh, for Mexico's um, evidentiary process. Uh, starting in 2008, the federal government int introduced reforms to the criminal justice system uh, to make it more of an oral adversarial system, kind of like ours, where evidence is presented in court by opposing parties, the, the, um, the prosecutor, uh, uh, and then the public, uh, public defender or the private uh, attorney. And, and we're very familiar with that model here in the United States, uh, but that's a big shift from what uh, how Mexico's criminal justice system used to operate in the past. Um, prior to 2008, um, in most states in Mexico, um, and, and prior to 2004, throughout the country, um, the prosecutor was essentially the the, the star player in the criminal justice system. The prosecutor. Um, basically presented evidence to the court without opposition, uh, without a, a direct counter narrative, uh, without um, cross, without re, uh, redirects or cross-examination by the defense. Um, the, 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 uh, the Ministerio Publico or the, the public prosecutor would present uh, basically his case in writing to the court and the Defense could challenge technical aspects of the report, but it couldn't present its own counter narrative, uh, its own theory of the case in the way that we do here in the United States. Uh, so it was basically the prosecutor completely unopposed. Um, and in many cases, prosecutors would manufacture evidence, would coerce evidence out of, a, uh, out of the accused, uh, literally beating a confession uh, out of a, a suspect. And so without, without any checks or balances on prosecutors, um, they were able to get convictions whenever they were able to identify a suspect, um, regardless, without any real test of whether the, the evidence fit the case, uh, whether, the, whether the suspect was in fact guilty. Uh, and that's where this concept that in Mexico, 
people are presumed guilty um, kind of comes in. You were, if you were detained, uh, you were held in pretrial detention for a year, two years, three years. I talked to people in Mexican prison who'd been there for two, three years. Uh, and there are cases that have gone on for, for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years where the individual is behind bars, but still has not been sentenced uh, because wow. the case just drags on and, and isn't prosecuted um, uh, in an efficient manner. Um, and so the reforms that were introduced now change the, um, the, the, the system so that evidence is presented in court. It's presented in a relatively fast and fluid manner in the way that we do in our oral uh, hearings here in the United States. And we've seen a significant reduction in the, the amount of time between uh, an individual's arrest and um, the, the time they receive their, the point at which they would receive a sentence. Uh, we've seen a significant drop in the number of, um, the, the number of people behind bars and the amount of time they're spending behind bars in pretrial detention. Um, and that's good, you know, for the presumption of innocence. Um, but it's also good because what it does is it puts the burden of proof on the prosecutor. Um, and it says that the prosecutors now, uh, because of new protections like um, building a, a rule against torture into the Mexican constitution in 2008 and um, requirements that the defense attorney must be present when um, the accused is being questioned, all those kinds of um, legal guarantees, due process guarantees that have been built into uh, the reforms of 2008 um, will now require prosecutors to actually do a good job of investigating the case, pulling, showing the evidence that an individual uh, is indeed, uh, that a suspect is indeed guilty of, of the charges. Uh, so there's, there's this need now for prosecutors uh, to, to move up to another level. They can't just walk into a room, beat a confession out of somebody. They actually have to go out and do real, real police work, real investigative work. Um, so that, <laughs> requires prosecutors now uh, to work with police in a way that they hadn't before to ensure that the crime scene is well preserved, to ensure that there, are, that, you know, that um, evidence is properly gathered and that the chain of custody uh, of evidence uh, is properly maintained. Things that just were not basic professional standards of policing that we uh, recognize here in the United States and that are universally practiced or almost universally practiced just didn't exist before in Mexico. So prosecutors have an enormous learning curve that they're dealing with right now in Mexico. And unfortunately for many of them, they just don't make the grade. We've surveyed prosecutors um, and judges and public defense attorneys in Mexico. And there's a universal consensus, except among prosecutors, that, um, that the level of professional ability of Mexican prosecutors is, is not adequate. It's, it's too low. Uh, pro judges, public defenders, everybody sees that, that there is a need for improvement there. There's a need for training. There's a need for, um, for, for uh, uh, internal procedures within prosecutors offices to make sure that people aren't dirty um, so that there's police are one part of the equation and arguably I think the most important part of the equation here but prosecutors need a lot of work in Mexico as well I was getting ready to ask you I know we got to run here in a minute or two is corruption pretty high as well among prosecutors yeah arguably it's worse among prosecutors than among police in the sense that um, you know, wow. if you get arrested by a police officer, um, 
that's you know one link in the chain but uh the person that's going to actually press charges against you uh and that really holds your fate in their hand is the prosecutor and so the potential for the prosecutor to either um uh, engage in uh, improper behavior by beating you or otherwise coercing you is very high um, in fact, in surveys of prisoners, of, of inmates, uh, they actually report higher levels of abuse um, or being asked for bribes among prosecutors than among police, uh, which is, is saying a lot. Wow. That um, is so, yeah, it's, it, it, corruption is definitely a problem. And, and especially if you're a drug trafficker, if you're a major organized crime figure, um, you want to make sure that the prosecutor is never going to come after you. And so there's a, a tendency to um, to bribe people in the prosecutor's office, in the basically in the attorney general's office in a given state or at the even at the national level, so it, it's it's a very serious problem, and that's why more sunlight, um, you know, more checks and balances in the criminal justice system is actually a good thing. I know law enforcement always gets frustrated by the public defenders or by defense attorneys, and in many cases they're they're defending really unsavory characters. Um, but uh, as a law, law enforcement uh, friend of mine once said uh, to me, you know, we, we, we really don't like public defenders and defense attorneys, but, you know, it's the best possible quality control for law enforcement to make sure that everything we do is scrutinized. Absolutely. Great point. I wish we could keep you here for another couple of hours. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Definitely have to bring you back to continue this conversation. I think you probably just hit the tip of the iceberg on us. Uh, it's great talking to you. Thanks so much. I'd love to chat again sometime. Uh, so thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to hearing from you in the future. Absolutely. Again, folks, you, you want to check it out, you can go to the website. It's justiceinmexico.org. Dr. Shirk and the team out there doing some great work. Fascinating stuff. And remember, if you want to follow us, you can go on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're just about everywhere. And when you go to YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button, hit that little bell to notify you of these great interviews as we continue our journey in our special series on what's happening down at the border, Mexico, drug cartels, and the rest. Stay safe, everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.